This is a conversation with Arjun Anand Das. He's a monk at ISKCON New York, particularly a guide and mentor for students in the city. His main research involves applying Vedic knowledge into personality development. In this conversation, we discuss his journey from studying computer science at NIT Suratkal to becoming a monk, life as a monk in an ashram, relevance of the Bhagavad Gita and his key message. And then we also dive into simulations, consciousness, and what happens after death. This is no time. If you like what you see, then do hit subscribe on YouTube, follow on Spotify or rate five stars on Apple Podcasts. Money can't buy you happiness and this conversation will definitely show you that. But it can definitely support this podcast. As I mentioned, this is getting harder and harder for me to do, but I'm going to keep doing it. So you can put some respect on the hustle and consider making a donation on Patreon. For the forms of love and support, you can follow this channel on Instagram or Twitter or follow me personally. And now, it's no time. The poet Robert Frost was walking through the forest one day and he came across two paths that led in completely different directions. And this is the poem he wrote about them. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. So around five years back, you were living the dream. You were studying computer science at NIT Suratkal. So how did you end up at ISKCON as a monk? Can you describe that transition in your life? Sure. So I'll just start with the prayer. We usually start with prayer before we start anything. Sure. So this prayer actually means that this world, we are all in a place uh, which is like a dense forest in the dark at night. So we can hear the uh, hissing of snakes. We can hear the roaring of some ferocious animals, but we cannot see anything. So how fearful it may be for that person. So when we are walking through such a forest, just somehow we happen to step on a torchlight and we pick it up and we can, if we switch it on, once the light is on, our whole path is laid, right? So then we can easily go back to home or something. We can get out of that forest. So similarly, this um, prayer says that I offer my obeisances, I offer my gratitude to my teachers who have given me the precious knowledge, which actually has opened my eyes to see the reality. Right? So this is what the prayer means. So... First, I would like to thank you for taking out your time. And uh, I'm grateful to you that usually people, not so many youths are interested in hearing the Bhagavad Gita. So I even I felt that this is a platform which can actually reach out to other people also. Those whoever watch your uh, podcast or your interviews, they can get benefited. So coming to your question, five years ago, I was, yeah, I was doing my computer science. But definitely it was never my... Uh, dream thing to do but usually i've heard this from one of my teachers he says and we all have been brought up in indian families so that's how it usually is either you're an engineer or a doctor a lawyer or a failure <laughs> right so mm. if, even with the same pressure uh i was i was doing computer science and it is interesting computer science the coding and all that but somewhere i felt that maybe there was uh, something more to life 
from childhood i remember i was interested something in books which were of the category of adventure or crime or mystery something like that so i felt there's something much more to life than just the routine lifestyle which everyone in this world is following so when i was doing my computer science uh, two things happened on one hand i was in a indian hostel and this is very likely with every other hostel in maybe across the world where people are into uh, wrong habits and they talk about things which are not so important and they talk about studies just before exam especially engineering so when i saw that type of lifestyle because i was brought up in a like a brahmana family so the culture is a little strong means no no drinking no smoking and no bad habits but when i went to the hostel it was like a culture shock though i went from dubai to india i mean from abu dhabi to india so what one would expect is more of culture in india but i expect i got more of culture in abu dhabi right so when i went back to india in the hostel when i saw these things that actually made me uh, want to quit hostel so but we were just going on with that and i was just going on with that and other thing which happened was i saw i got a hand of someone handed me this bhagavad gita as it is so when i started reading the bhagavad gita and i also met some of my friends who were studying the gita and uh, they were practicing the principles of bhagavad gita and they were gentlemanly so that attracted me very much they they were very simple at heart they were pure in their lifestyle and their habits were good and they were like gold medalists silver medalists you know uh, so they were acing the exams so they had everything what i uh, what i was actually looking for so some sort of a more lifestyle based on character so then i started studying the gita and associating with these of my these friends and then uh, so that lifestyle attracted me then i started visiting because i got bhagavad gita as it is so i started visiting iskon uh, temple i was in uh, i have i have gone to temples in pune and in bangalore so when i went there i saw many monks there they were going out they were from morning you know they get up very early until night either they are um, working on their personality or helping others improve their personality so i saw this lifestyle of servitude which attracted me very much so then i thought i uh, also worked i worked for some time in bangalore in company called tesco uh after that i felt this is what i'm actually looking for because i i sensed a, a feeling of fulfillment which nothing in my life actually gave right just like some things can give pleasure like going to a theater or going for bowling it can give some sort of a thrill or some sort of a pleasure but pleasure is not necessarily equated with happiness or fulfillment or satisfaction but when i came and practiced the principles of gita and i saw how these principles of gita could affect others lives positively that actually gave me more fulfillment so i thought and my father was anyway he's he's well off he's not in need of money or anything because he was working in abu dhabi so i thought why not i give my life for a better cause than filling my own pocket it's better to serve others you said something very interesting when you mentioned that people when they're living abroad and we've noticed that in the gulf both of us have grown up in yeah. the gulf 
they tend to keep the core of their culture and the tradition a lot more they hold on to it a bit more yeah as compared to people in india and i felt the same why do you think that is why do you think that in a foreign land of sorts we end up slightly becoming slightly more nationalistic slightly more patriotic and maybe slightly more religious as well why do you think that happens i think it's uh, by nature because when you when we are at our home we don't feel the we don't understand the necessity of water but you go to a desert and you are going to stay near the oasis and nowhere else right so it is more of a necessity because when we go to abroad where the culture is very different from our culture then we become something like homesick we have been brought up in a certain culture and when you go to somewhere else then you may you want to hold on to what you have been brought up with of course yeah makes sense sorry so you were talking about uh, your father and when you were working at tesco and that's when you made the decision so yeah what was the tipping point that you have one moment where you decided this is it i'm going to now uh, take up a completely different path um for me it was more of a planned when i was studying itself i felt i mean working and just making money and getting married and i mean there are monks i mean we have in our culture there are two types of monks or brahmacharis we call them one is called naishtika brahmachari who is like a lifelong celibate completely dedicated and second one is also like uh, completely dedicated but he gets married and has family he is called as upakurvana brahmachari so we have both of them so but i chose the first path and it was more of a planned because i felt uh, when i i was in the hostel i was practicing the principles of gita and i felt why not have it was like, there resistance uh, from your family when you decided to yes, move yes of in course space? of course how did you <laughs> how did you com- combat that resistance um initially there was resistance and gradually i think my father also saw that i was pretty much convinced with what i'm doing and i'm not just i'm also being productive i've i've told him how i go to universities and teach students about bhagavad gita and how there are many people who have who have gone to the point of you know complete they're quitting their studies or very low scores and they're going to depression and such people after coming in contact with the principles of gita they have actually become very much positive in their life and they have you know they beam bright uh, smiles from their faces so these are there's so many case studies and when he found out that this is what i'm doing he is trying to digest trying to digest yeah, trying so to there's still some resistance yeah <laughs> yes there's always going to be some resistance so what was your first month in an ashram like uh, was it iskon bangalore was it no i was in uh, yes in in bangalore mm-hmm. yes okay so what was your first month like was there resistance from your own self like was it was it a struggle at any point did you feel like adapting to this life at maybe the first month was any temptation to go back to quote unquote normal life yes maybe probably for the first 2 weeks 2 to 3 weeks i was just thinking maybe i shouldn't have quit my job no and my father was also screaming on the phone why why the hell why you? were you feeling that sorry uh i was feeling because i thought maybe i could have waited for some more time you know because i i worked for as i graduated then i worked for 8 months or so and i just quit the job and uh, then i wanted to completely uh, dedicate and get the training and help others so uh when i joined i i just had the feeling that i could have worked for some more time and got more maybe earned more money and um you know given to my parents or taken care of the needs but all that is even taken care of now 
I was just feeling it's just like it's completely new. And how did that pass in the, after the two weeks? It's just how, like time. Just time. Just time. <laughs> so it was just adapting to the new. Yeah, it was just adapting adapting to the new environment. So what does an average day in an ashram for a monk look like? What do you do? Generally, we uh, get up, get up early in the morning. Some serious monks get up like two a.m. But uh, I mean, everyone is serious. Others get up at three thirty or four a.m. But usually not more than after four. And uh, we have at four thirty in across the world on most of the temples we have we call it the Mangalarti in the morning, where the deities are worshipped, and uh, we sing some bhajan, and we do kirtan of Hare Krishna mantra. and we like sing and chant and dance in the morning that's the first thing we do and after that we have meditation for a couple of hours 2 hours probably from 5:15 to 7:15 or so and we chant the hare krishna mantra for 2 hours and then uh, we have again the deities are uh, bathed and they are worn new clothes so we have again darshan after which we have uh, Bhagavatam. We have a class on Vedic scriptures, especially the Shrimad Bhagavatam. And following that, we have nice prasadam, the breakfast prasadam. And during the day, we allot maybe two to three hours for personal study of the uh, scriptures, like Bhagavad Gita or other wisdom literatures. And after that, we go out. We reach out to people to give out the Bhagavad Gita, or we go to universities and teach. or different different programs different monks have different programs depending on age groups some tutor to youths some tutor to um, you know middle age or working professionals or married couples some tutor to elderly people accordingly we have different uh, programs throughout the day and we have lunch and then in the evening we actually come back we come back and uh, we have uh, bhagavad gita class and we have hot milk and then we take rest we usually take rest early because we get up early we take rest by 9 9:30 max is there value in reading books uh, non spiritual books non religious books is there is there scope for that yeah yes of course if it's actually helping us in our uh, goal because anyone who wants to be a monk is just like uh, we are there's a quality of a monk called as avyartha kalatvam it means to utilize every moment for the actual purpose of life that is usually practiced by the monks so whatever books we use even if it's like non spiritual like there is this book called uh, seven habits of highly effective people by stephen covey he has taken he has uh, spoken in one of his reports that he has taken the principles from the bhagavad gita so many some some of us do study that because even in ashram we are dealing with people right and these are all uh, the other monks who also have dedicated themselves to something and when we want to deal with them we don't want to be you know have any conflicts inside so sometimes we do that but we use such books just to you know whichever helps us go forward in this path you also mentioned uh, of course you sit and meditate uh, blaise pascal had said that most of man's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone so when you're meditating um what are you doing what forms of meditation are you practicing and how do you meditate yeah so meditation um it is a struggle 
it is very much a struggle but before that there are two types of meditation is it still a struggle for you yes yes it well, is a struggle that's comforting to hear yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um there are two types of meditation one is where we do our personal meditation we sit down and we try to focus our mind on chanting this hare krishna mantra hare krishna hare krishna 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 hare 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 ram hare ram 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 hare hare so we chant it um most of the monks we all do like 100 we have a beads like this one these are the beads inside so there are like 108 of these so one round constitutes 108 times of hare krishna mantra and then we do it 16 times that takes approximately 2 hours that is one form of meditation another form of meditation is we get together and we have bring our instruments and we sing and dance what is the difference between the two what is the power of the chant what does that do what is the benefits of that and what is the difference is there a difference in feeling that you experience after the group meditation as well how do you compare the two yeah a uh, good question and when we do group meditation it's more like synergy you know like 1 plus 1 is 11 so when we all come together and we bring instruments and focus on hare krishna mantra there is a tune there is uh, music there is lot of joy in singing and dancing so that actually helps us to to go deeper into our personal meditation which we it's our uh, where we we recite the mantra and use our mind to focus on the mantra right so that actually gives us more encouragement no more empowerment to do personal meditation and in turn when we do personal meditation which is called japa that actually helps us to again come together and do uh coming together the group chanting which is called as kirtan sankirtan like that they reinforce one another right so when you're doing a personal meditation it's the chant that you're focusing on all the time yes so is that what's going on in your mind is just the chant throughout yes why because there are different meditation um some meditation say not to focus on anything some say uh, uh, just a dot but our our meditation technique is uh, so configured that we focus on hare krishna mantra because it's spiritual it is mentioned the vedic scriptures and it is uh, it has different effects like spiritual effects which i can tell uh, in the we can discuss in the future in our discussion and uh, but if our mind has to focus on something it cannot focus on nothing right just like if we right because our mind cannot be void if we are not focus on focusing on x automatically our mind is everywhere else so we need some object of meditation so but that doesn't mean we have any object of meditation right so we need the right object of meditation which can help us go ahead in the path so that meditation uh, that object of meditation according to bhagavad gita according to different different uh, wisdom literatures is chanting the names of god and not just bhagavad gita even if you see quran if you see bible any other religion religious text they all have the same process of chanting chanting the names of god got it okay before i dive into the questions about the gita okay i have a slightly personal question for you just based on this interview uh shri goranga das had oh, once wow. said that uh, there is a mysterious simultaneous existence of both joy and sorrow in a spiritualist heart Yeah, and looking at you, I feel the same. Okay. Would you agree with him? Yeah, but I don't know why you feel that I have sorrow. <laughs> I I just get this feeling. So there's a lot of peace, a lot of happiness. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. it also feels like like there will be there is some sorrow. There's an understanding of some grief or some sorrow somewhere. Yeah, I perfectly agree with him, and that's that's our philosophy, actually, because 
spirituality usually what is thought of by the people outside i mean those who are not practicing spiritual life they think spiritual life means just like dry detachment you have to leave everything to wear saffron robes and leave the city go to the forest and and do what just meditate on nothing it seems so dry it's not it's not at least recommended in the kali yuga in this age so um what we do is we have um meditation focusing on uh, hari krishna mantra and we have positive uh what can we say positive aspects of meditation right we our spiritual practices are filled with positive aspects like who doesn't like singing who doesn't like dancing in the whole college too, if you have diwali program the first thing they want is you know usually they have the disco today <laughs> yeah it's all singing and dancing yes. right i think it was nash or some philosopher in in europe in the 1800s or 1900s he said that i actually believe in god if he sings and chants he sings and dances right that was his philosophy right. but when he uh, before he died he went to a church wall and he wrote god is dead because no one could see god in those days it was all like communist parties and then he put god is dead hyphen his name nish i think nietzsche yeah. friedrich nietzsche i yeah. i guess i'm okay. it's mostly him right then uh, then he died and someone wrote, you know scratched of god and wrote nish is dead hyphen god <laughs> right <laughs> but but he said i would i would actually believe in god if he sings and dances so in most of the actual uh, uh, practices of spirituality there's always singing and dancing so it's very joyous but at the same time we do take anxiety to reach out to others right because stress is not all you know not all in all condemned stress is good when it actually motivates us to do something get into action so we have some sort of anxiety and stress in thinking how how can i you know give this gita to use how can i teach them how can more people start practicing the principles of gita and how can uh, they benefit from this so that requires some level of anxiety but all this uh, sorrow not i wouldn't say sorrow but anxieties or happiness they are all on a spiritual platform it's not same as the happiness or an anxiety is taken you know undergo uh, undergone by a man out who is not practicing spiritual life because even the sorrow in spiritual life takes you ahead but the sorrow outside takes you down you know that's why you have self help books and books to manage stress and distress and all that got it okay so let's talk about the gita um they say you can open any page of the gita and you will get the answer that you're looking for gaur gopal das has gone on record to say that the bhagavad gita is not a religious book it's a book about life so if you had to give a synopsis of the gita to someone who hasn't read it what is the gita about and what is the key message in it okay yeah bhagavad gita is an interesting book first of all what i would like to mention is the background of bhagavad gita so this is i'm pretty sure every indian would have heard the mahabharat or watched mahabharat he knows how the story is going so when the pandavas they were uh you know in a way destined to fight the kauravas because they went on the exile they followed all the uh impositions by the kauravas uh and they went to exile they did uh the last year agnyatavas where they had to be covered and if they were found they again had to go to another exile that was the condition and they fulfilled everything for 14 years and then when they came back 
still the kaurava said we cannot give you the kingdom back so that time um and what i li- like about the pandavas is that they're very noble though bhima and arjuna wanted to go and fight but yudhishthir said no they are our brothers let's first try for peace look they sent uh, krishna also as a peace messenger but uh, kauravas didn't heed and finally they krishna told them that they there's no other option apart from war because they tried everything and duryodhana the head of the kaurava team he said i cannot give even that much land to the pandavas upon which a head of nil can rest what that means like a dot of land so because the pandavas said you keep the kingdom and we are happy because we are kshatriya by nature kshatriya means they have to rule over something and we have to protect that area so they said at least you give us five villages that's a pretty good deal but uh, duryodhana said i cannot give even uh, even a small amount that much amount of land upon which the head of needle can rest so then war was destined and then uh, pandavas were also very much uh, eager to uh i mean because krishna wanted the war it was dharma yuddha we know of all the injustices uh, which the pandavas underwent there was cheating in uh, in the game and there was disrobing of draupadi in the sabha of generals and no none of them did anything so the war had to happen because if uh, you know war doesn't happen then the adharma will rule over dharma and when duryodhana was ruling draupadi is being disrobed in the assembly of generals so it's not a very good example what can you expect in future so then war had to happen and pandavas gathered their army and kauravas gathered their army and they came to uh, battle and one more thing i would like to mention the vedic culture how they would battle is even this was even prevalent 1000 years back when alexander the great he came towards the indian uh, subcontinent he saw when chandragupta maurya's team they would fight they would always take their soldiers and the the king all of them would have battle outside the kingdom so that the innocent people are not hurt but today when you know wars happen they shoot missile or they first destroy the capital with the innocent women children old people who have nothing to do with the war so alexander the great he very much appreciated because the you know chandragupta maurya's army was headed headed by chanakya pandit he was like the uh, guide for them right so so similarly they actually went to a place called kurukshetra which is supposed which is called one of the holy lands in india and they wanted to have a face off there so arjuna was very confident at the beginning and he told krishna krishna you take my chariot in between the both the armies just so that i can analyze both the parties let me see who all are who are, who all have assembled on the kaurava side and who all have assembled on the pandava side and we can get some strategy and we can defeat them he was very confident he was like a gold medalist you know iit gold medalist arjuna so when he when Ar- krishna took arjuna in, uh, between the bat- uh, both the teams and arjuna when he saw the kaurava party he saw bhishma his own uh, you know uh, they're all the same family the family members and he saw drona his teacher his grandfather his teacher his uh, brothers cousins even duryodhana is his own cousin so then he lost all confidence he thought is there really a necessity for war can't we then he gives many many uh, arguments to krishna saying that you know 
best is not to fight you know let karvas enjoy the kingdom and we'll i'll take sanyas i will go to the forest and i'll just beg arms and survive so like that he gave many arguments that if if the kings die on the other side who will take care of the wives then if wives are not taken care the women will be exploited then there'll be varnashankara population varnashankara population means uh, that population which is not which is by illicit affairs so such population create havoc in society so he gives very nice arguments saying that if we have this war there will be a societal social degradation and krishna heard all of this and then he speaks the gita so at this time arjuna tells krishna that my gandiva is slipping is like you know a consistent topper in a prestigious university on the final exam he's saying you know i'm i'm getting nervous to write so it's uh, it's something something to cope up with and we all will be in that situation today or tomorrow they were on an external battlefield kurukshetra but we have a, our internal battles right we always have a choice between uh, the vice and virtue right so in this way actually bhagavad gita then uh, i was talking about arjuna so arjuna said my gandiva is slipping my uh, you know my hairs are standing on end i'm feeling nervous my te- uh, my lips are becoming dry so he says he gives a big description of how he's feeling that uh, inferiority complex it's not actually inferiority complex he says how he's feeling uh, too ang- anxious is overridden with anxieties so basically he's going into depression that is the today's term when nothing works out people go into depression so arjuna was somewhat in that state so then krishna speaks the bhagavad gita and he gives different different concepts of he gives the science of soul and then he gives he talks about karma yoga and he talks about uh, controlling the mind then he talks about bhakti yoga he also talks about gyana yoga knowledge he talks about sankhya in, in a way that you know this is all the material world everything is made up of matter so he, in this way he actually talks about different different concepts in the gita if, which if someone undergoes and understands he can actually become victorious like arjuna after the war once arjuna heard the gita he became so confident and towards end there's a verse actually gita is a book which is the entire conversation though it's uh, between krishna and arjuna it's actually being envisioned by sanjaya and he's telling to dhritarashtra what is happening he had that power he could see the war from the palace so sanjaya was telling everything to dhritarashtra because dhritarashtra was blind right so towards the end sanjaya remarks he tells wherever there is arjuna a devotee like arjuna and wherever there is krishna in such a place there is always victory there is always prosperity and there is always opulence so everyone is looking for this right so when we understand and learn and apply the teachings of the gita that time we are bound to be unaffected by suffering we are bound to be unaffected by things of this world but be happy and uh, throughout be happy throughout our lives we can do, we can do that we can be peaceful because we cannot say that there is not going to be a havoc in our life tomorrow right there is going to be a conflict today there is going to be havoc tomorrow disaster day after tomorrow but krishna actually helps us to rise ourselves beyond these problems and stay aloof from these problems being unaffected by the problems is there one verse or one message that really sticks out to you is like one of your favorite verses you know yeah, actually there are many okay but i um 
I still remember when I was this is for the internship when I was sitting for interview for Amazon. So there were many other stalwarts like you know nine point eight pointer and ten pointers <laughs> also sitting. Yeah. But definitely, I was uh, nervous. So then I had this uh, Gita on my phone. So I just took out this verse. It's uh, from the fifth chapter, twenty ninth verse. It's called the Peace Formula. Mm-hmm. So it says, "Bhogtaram yagya tapasam sarva loka maheshwaram suhritam sarva bhutanam nyatva mam shantim ritchiti." In Sanskrit, so it say uh, Krishna is saying this. If someone understands that me, Krishna, is not me as in I am Krishna, but Krishna is the enjoyer, he is the controller and the proprietor of everything, and such a person is the dear, the most dear friend of every living entity. So then, that's a, that person who understands this knowledge, he can be peaceful. Why? Because just suppose we want to get into US and study, we are, we want to get into some university. and the university for which you are aiming the professor there is your uncle so you have a, you know you have recommendation or you have you, you have a clear pathway you don't have to be really nervous because you're confident he'll take care so similarly krishna is saying in this world everything belongs to me and i am controlling everything and i am also the beneficiary of everything i'm everything is meant for my enjoyment but not that now krishna is controller and proprietor and everything enjoyer and we have no relationship with him but such a great person he is our most dear friend and how confident should we be so really should we worry about the problems right so this is called the peace formula because it actually just when we understand that such a great person is on our side then we become peaceful just like there was this incident there is a small story that uh, there was an airplane it was undergoing some strong turbulence in the air so all the people such you know freaking out they were screaming and shrilling and everything but there was a small girl sitting near the window and she had no sign of worry on her face so the man sitting elderly man sitting next to her he was bewildered he was thinking how is she so calm and peaceful so he went on to ask her how come you're not freaking out just look at all the people screaming and creating a mess so she said You, do you know what my father is the pi- uh, pilot of this plane so i know he'll i'm pretty sure he'll take me back home so something like that you know if we understand our relationship with god and understanding what his capacities are then we don't really have to be worried about anything in our life you mentioned understanding our relationship with god um can i ask you what is the gita's interpretation of god of Brah- brahman brahman yeah? yes brahman so what is god according to gita So um Krishna actually goes on to explain about uh, himself so wherever in the Gita we see we don't see Krishna vacha we say Bhagavan vacha so in other vedic literatures Parashar Muni he is the father of Vyasadev who compiled all the vedic literatures so he says um Bhagavan trans- uh, he says he gives a literal definition bhaga means opulences and van means one who possesses So he explains that one who possesses six opulences in co- completely in full, he is Bhagavan. So what are the six opulences? There is uh, knowledge, there is wealth, there is beauty, there is fame, power. So l- like this, there are six opulences in total. And uh, usually in this world also, we usually get attracted to whom? Those who are beautiful, those who are rich. Like suppose we get attracted to Bill Gates. we get attracted to bill gates because he's rich not necessarily because he's you know mr universe 
right? Or we get attracted to Stephen Hawking because he's a genius, not necessarily he's very smart or not necessarily he's rich. So these six opulences are what we are actually looking for. And Krishna tells uh, elsewhere in the Gita that all this uh, opulences in this world, like if someone is rich, someone may be a lakhpati, krorpati, right? And it goes on. But no one can say, I'm Lakshmipati. When Krishna is Lakshmipati, right? Lakshmipati means she is the goddess of fortune, right? But goddess of fortune is wife of who? Krishna, finally. So we see no one can claim that I have all the wealth in this world. Or no one can claim I'm the most beautiful person in this world. And even if someone is entitled as Mr. Universe, how long is he going to be Mr. Universe? Right? Because everything, he gets aged or everything is temporary in this world. So Bhagavan means one who is, com who is complete in these six opulences. He is most beautiful. He is completely wealthy. He is uh, most powerful. He is uh, most knowledgeable. We can just see the Bhagavad Gita spoken, it's said to be around 55 minutes or so to Arjuna in the battlefield. But we take years to study this. So it can only be Krishna who can you know, speak such level of knowledge that we spend our lives in going deep and applying in our lives. Right? So he's most knowledgeable. So like this, all the six opulences, he's, he's, in, he's complete in all the six opulences. And one of the other opulences is renunciation. So how is Krishna renounced? Right? He's God. But he is not attached to any of the opulence because he had to take the role of a chariot driver for Arjuna. And those days you don't have a horn or, you know, when you're going in the battlefield and there are Brahmastras being released. So there's a lot of noise. So if Arjuna has to tell Krishna, take left, he can, he can do it only by kicking Krishna. So he has to kick. And to the degree the kick is uh, very strong, to that degree he takes the left. So it's very strong, then you know, sharp left. Light, slight left, you know, is the, that's how he directs. So Krishna is not really attached to his position as, you know, I am God and everyone should bow down before me. So that's a very uh, limited knowledge of God as uh, gen a generator, operator and destroyer. That's all he does. He created everything, he's maintaining and he destroys. But that's not, that's a very limited understanding. I have a slightly personal question for you. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Was there a moment in your life where you felt the presence of a creator, of a God? It could have been a moment, it could have been a miracle, an event of sorts where you were certain that this is God. Yes, for sure. Um, just like I was mentioning about the interview. So actually I didn't complete the, about the interview, right? So when I, uh, when I read this Gita, then I became peaceful. Then when I actually went inside for the interview, the same questions what I practiced, it was all competitive. Like for coding, you, have, you get competitive coding questions. So the very same questions which I had practiced before, they, the same things came. So I didn't even have to think. I just had to put it down from my mind. Then everything worked out. And there were 10 pointers and 9.5 pointers who didn't get selected. And I was selected. So, so such instances, there, there are many which actually made me feel that, yes, God does exist. Because we see, um, when we say God, God also is his words. Like the Bhagavad Gita. So when we apply Gita, Krishna tells in Gita that Rasoham Apsukanteya. Arjuna, I am the taste of water. So when we are very thirsty, we need water and nothing else. There are some moments in, I mean, pretty sure everyone has experienced this. Sometimes we just want water, you know. Even if someone stops you and says, you know, you got placed in this company, 
give me the news later first give me water so krishna tells i am the uh, taste of water and krishna tells i am the strength of the strong i am the intelligence of the intelligent so when we see actually when we study gita we can actually see it's called we develop a uh, shastra chakshu it means we gain a vision of the scriptures of the uh, vision of wisdom literatures like that so uh, these are some of the ways uh, i had trained my eyes to see uh, god in a, god's hand in our lives so whenever anything happens for uh, for usually the people who believe they can see god's hand usually what happens is i have, have heard the saying actually devotees see god everywhere and uh, those who don't believe like atheists see god nowhere how can it be possible like how can you see something everywhere and how can someone see it nowhere right it basically it's uh, based on faith so one can anyone can see miracles but that miracle seeing that vision of miracles is possible for one who has faith and faith is not something uh, just oh you are religious and you have to put faith but i'm so scientific i don't put faith you know even science requires faith even uh, reasoning requires faith there's a topic where by one of my teachers he gave a talk on faith is the reason for reason so only if you have faith then you can because we put faith in reasoning that reasoning can give me solutions so something like that you mentioned some atheists Yeah, yeah. So I would actually like to play devil's advocate, no and problem. I would like to run few objections that atheists always raise, and I want to check your opinion okay. on them, and what would be your counter for that. So one popular atheist is Sam Harris. I'm sure you must have heard of him, and he had raised one objection for all religious texts. I'm saying in quotes, religious. Of course, the Gita is more of a more of a book than just a religious. It's a book about life, as we discussed. So Sam Harris had said that the quest for meaning, for purpose, has to be universal. it cannot be hidden in a particular language or culture you cannot be born by luck into one religion that has cracked the real meaning of life so do you think this objection is valid do you think the way of life specified by the gita why is that right in comparison to other religious texts um is it possible that people in the subcontinent only stumbled upon the right way of living and that is now encapsulated into one particular language that we were lucky enough to be born into of course not i feel uh... at least what i've been uh, taught and what i've understood is every religion actually leads uh, one to the goal ultimate goal and what the ultimate goal is to basically the gita or any religious text it actually helps us to understand who i am who god is and what is the relationship between the two so there are so many commonalities there may be slight differences but there are so many commonalities all the scriptures explain of uh, about who we are all scriptures talk about god all scriptures talk about a spiritual realm beyond this world all scriptures uh, talk about the evil the good these are all commonalities they talk about the soul that we are not this body we are the spirit soul sitting inside the body so these are concepts mentioned if you see quran if you see bible it's mentioned in every uh, uh, religious text so for him to say that you know it's by how are we uh, somehow stumble upon the exact that religion which is like the goal is not like that it's basically every religion leads one to the ultimate goal provided he practices it properly so even when we reach out we come across many um uh, people of other religions also 
and we tell them that actually this Gita is a universal manual. It's filled with universal principles, like God, like sun. Sun is universal. I may call it Surya in Hindi. I may call it uh, different. You know, it is in French. It's le sol, right? So different languages call the sun differently, but ultimately the sun is the sun, right? It doesn't really matter if you call it differently or you one party names it something and another party names it something else, right? Even mother, it's ma in one language. It's amma in another language, right? Even water. So these are all universal things. So similarly, Bhagavad Gita is filled with universal principles. You may call God as Krishna. Someone may call God as Allah. Someone may call God as Christ. But it's is ultimate one God. The meaning is universal. Okay, so I also want to check another objection. Um, this is a debate Sam Harris had with Jordan Peterson, and they were debating the idea of religious texts being based in the form of a story, and stories. Um, So this is Jordan Peterson's argument. He says stories are a very powerful medium for conveying complex ideas about morality, about spirituality, about ways of living, and they have this evolutionary benefit of being easily remembered and then repeated over the ages. So probably one of the reasons why the Bhagavad Gita has survived so long is because it is in the form of this story that is so captivating that it was uh, passed on generation after generation and until Adi Shankaracharya, who then publishes commentary on it as well, and then even survive even further from there. So clearly, there's a benefit of that, but the argument that Sam Harris gives now is that even though that evolutionary benefit might exist, now it feels like basing uh, spiritual wisdom in the premise of a story can turn out to be a distraction in the modern age because people are always looking for legitimacy, facts. Did this really happen? Did they really exist or not? And in doing so, what they end up doing is um, they end up really distracting from what the message of the book is and focusing more on whether it's. Uh, the characters were real. They go as far as calling a myth or mythology as well, and what are the facts that the event actually happened or not? And the message is completely drowned out. Would you agree with this? Yeah, I agree uh, to some part of it. The first aspect. That's why the stories are there. Like, what's the good a story without lesson, without morals? So Vyasadev, who is the compiler of all the Vedic literatures, he actually he knew that people cannot understand. who is interested in philosophy directly like it's very technical also though gita is so useful it's also technical so people in, in general the common mass will not want to read something technical they want some politics right yeah. they want some flavor you know when draupadi is being disrobed it's something very uh, creates a lot of uh, suspense what's going to happen next so yeah drama so all this is uh, provided by a story so vyasadev was so intelligent that he actually made the entire mahabharat it's a huge compilation and in the right in between he presented the bhagavad gita so people are very much interested in the stories not much in philosophy but when you go through mahabharat you are you will stumble upon bhagavad gita and that that's exactly the reason because like you said like or like he says because people like stories but i don't say that it's a distraction because uh, like you were mentioning he feels that if people um go to stories then there's a question on legitimacy because uh, they want to check if the story is really true or if the characters existed did they yeah, really the happen yes yeah it seems too far fetched science cannot explain it and all those yes in comparison to other fiction books if you tell me harry potter everyone yes. knows it's fiction so i can yes. just focus on the message of it but correct, in, correct. in the case of these books they always trying to question whether it actually mm. existed or not i think like our uh, founder acharya of iskan shila prabhupad 
he said questioning or doubting is a sign of intelligence so even in our uh, when we come to these stories we don't there are people because we usually reach out to youths in uh, esteemed universities so there these intellectuals they need some proof and we have proofs so when we talk about mahabharat there have been archaeological surveys by different archaeologists who have found different uh, remains of the dwarka city or of um, the war kurukshetra war they have found the gada of bhima the, the many things like that so there there are different proofs which can actually satisfy the intellectuals and it is uh, according to me i think it's proper because when we present something we don't present it uh, just like that just a story but we have even the proofs for that also in uh, when we pass pass the message down down the line over time so there is something called the disciplic succession or parampara like just like we go to school we don't go to any school we go to an authorized school so similarly to understand the vedic knowledge there are four authorized schools the one is uh, headed by brahma called the brahma sampradaya sampradaya means the disciplic succession other one is headed by lakshmi called the shri sampradaya other one by uh, kumaras called kumar sampradaya and shiva called the rudra sampradaya now if you go to any uh, other school than these four i cannot guarantee that it's really true the message they're giving because the, uh, the responsibility of these schools is that they bring down the knowledge by uh, accomplished and authorized professors right so if you go to iit today you are going to learn from an iit professor he himself has undergone training he himself is very much qualified he has done a lot of research he's like 10 times more knowledgeable than me so i can put faith that if i learn from him he's going to teach me something valuable right and uh, we see that he has a uh, authorization letter from the school to teach also right just like we don't we don't just pick up any note sometimes the fake notes right so similarly in the sampradaya we have the bona fide teacher and coming in a uh, bona fide disciplic succession which is the only the four schools so when we go to these four schools then we get the right knowledge because the teachers are right the disciplic succession is coming down the line like that okay so let's talk about um applying vedic philosophy and the bhagavad gita into controlling your mind and before that let's set the premise so let me start with the dumbest question possible what is consciousness consciousness means according to oxford dictionary it means awareness just to be aware or to say just uh, for example if we think i am like existence that awareness is consciousness but there are different levels of consciousness what are those levels so there are different uh, categorizations available uh on a very broad scale like we see not just humans are conscious animals are conscious trees are conscious jagdish chandra bose he discovered or even uh, uh insects are conscious aquatics are conscious or even if you go above human beings the demigods are conscious in the heavenly planets the heavenly beings gandharvas apsaras they're all conscious beings but the how much we can perceive our and from our environment that varies right like the trees they cannot perceive much because uh, they don't have i mean even if you see from a scientific point of view they don't have nervous system right so their perception is very limited or if you see uh, different other small animals they cannot they do perceive 
but not as much as human beings we are more sophisticated in perception right but if you see cows they are very good at perception why because uh, there has been some case when uh, even if uh, the farmer the owner of the cow is like 2 kilometers away he can the cow can understand this good amount of perception or sometimes the calf is taken away from the cow she cries tears even from other animals they have emotions also but we see this perception is very much developed in human beings so all this uh, perception is based on consciousness so that is one broad categorization but even if you limit to human beings the categorization is into five levels so even uh, i don't recall his name it's called the maslow's triangle have you heard of it yeah maslow's pyramid of needs yeah, yeah. so he says um i can give you the sanskrit term he has different levels the first one is the annamaya kosh is called it means uh, in that level of consciousness one is only worried about food like the babies or you know not much of consciousness just eating and sleeping but beyond that is pranamaya kosh where one actually becomes more aware and he starts worrying about security his food and those things are taken care of, but now he is uh, worried about defend defending himself so we have like uh, you know you have loans all these different forms of defense then beyond that you have gyanamaya or manomaya same thing that is on the mind mental platform so if someone plays uh, uh, chess and he gets a victory so that is on a mental platform he gets mental pleasure because uh, it's on more of a subtle platform ego level then comes vigyanamaya vigyanamaya means uh, of the intelligence so now he is think he is more uh, developed in consciousness where he is able to perceive other intelligence platform it means he can have realizations he is he can go uh, he can understand what this world is all about he is more into reality and then final is after when one attains self realization and maslow i think calls it the self actualization in this triangle the topmost pyramid it's called anandamaya where one actually attains the his he attains self realization he understands who am i who is god and what is our relationship and he becomes very blissful so that is an, these are the five uh, levels of consciousness within the human beings you can see i mean other animals would be like even if you want to put them they'll be in anamaya or pranamaya that's it not more so the mind is just one level of the consciousness which is often i mean until you step down the path for spiritual discovery you often feel like your mind is who you are but there is is just one level is it oh yes we are actually not the mind also if we study the gita bhagavad gita krishna tells in second chapter and other chapter later chapter also he tells first we have this gross body which you can see mine i can see your body which people see in the mirrors so this body is made up of panch mahabhut so panch mahabhut means the five uh, elements which actually makes up the entire matter anything matter the table the lamp uh, the mic laptop anything is made up of this panch mahabhut so uh, it is earth water fire air and ether these are the five elements so our body is grossly made up of these four five things it's called the gross body and within this gross body we have something called the subtle body right so subtle body is uh, it is made up of three components the one is mind one is intelligence and false ego so mind means it's like a, a naughty child just goes here and there i want this i want that and the intelligence is like the parent who actually controls the mind says okay you want that okay you can have that oh but not that right but false ego is thinking this is me 
like most of the people today uh, they think i am this body that's because of the false ego or uh, some once in india when i was walking on the road i saw this uh, person in benz car mercedes benz he was uh, going and there was heavy traffic and he was honking and this there was a rickshaw person in between uh, in ahead of him and the signal was green and he wasn't moving so this person sitting in the benz car he said hey rickshaw hey rickshaw uh, move ahead but he's not rickshaw he's rickshaw wala the person in the rickshaw so sometimes even in uh, different arcades sometimes we sit in that car but the car is moving in the screen mm-hmm. have you seen that first yeah. yeah yeah so uh, when we play we are thinking we are actually there yeah. actually racing but actually we are not there we are we are you know ourselves sitting outside on a simulator right so this uh, identifying ourselves with something else other than our original um, nature is called the false ego so our subtle body is made up of the, the, these three things mind intelligence and the false ego and beyond that within that is our self the soul so this soul is actually the person this is like us it's called atma and so then he has it's like us we have inter, uh, inner covering like you know banyan then or thermal something and beyond that we have shirt pant like that but we are actually the person we are not, not the shirt so as for the tips for controlling the mind so our vedic uh, wisdom it gives uh, uh, many tips out of which the different tips for different ages and we see that this age of kali yuga is age of distraction so we have weapons of mass distraction right so today to practice silent meditation just meditation in the mind or to go to forest you cannot go to forest those days like satya yuga people will go to forest or in dwapar yuga the process for self realization or to attain one pointed fixity would be to practice deity worship or in the dwapar uh, treta yuga it would be uh, to conduct yagnyas like big big sacrifices and they have recitation of mantras and they pour ghee and all that today we cannot get high quality ghee so and there are no proper brahmanas to conduct the sacrifice so for kali yuga all the vedic uh, wisdom it explains that when we take to the uh, chanting of uh, names of god particularly this mantra because it's mentioned in kali santarna upanishad hare krishna hare krishna 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 hare 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 ram hare ram 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 hare hare so this mantra is uh, especially uh, emphasized to be chanted during this age because that can actually help control the mind how is it controlling the mind because when we chant mantra it's called uh, uh, transcendental sound vibration it means it is not a sound vibration of this world if someone says coca cola coca cola coca cola he gets frustrated and there was a uh, research uh, done based on this and there's a research paper also published so there were three groups who were uh, made to practice different things and there uh, one group chanted the hare krishna mantra second group of individuals chanted a concocted mantra something like coca cola or something just made up and third group didn't chant at all didn't do any meditation technique so the research observed before they um, they observed before they all uh, did the chanting and after the chanting so and the factors which were being observed were uh, the mode of uh, goodness how they can become peaceful and calm cool collected and uh, how much they were the degree of 
uh, depression, whether it increased or reduced, and degree of stress. These were the three factors. So interestingly, they saw uh, for the uh, degree of depression, uh, the meditation of the concocted mantra and the Hare Krishna mantra uh, both was a positive. Whereas Hare Krishna mantra gave a huge positive, by huge margin, it was positive. And the people who didn't chant anything, they had a, a negative influence. And for stress, uh, those who chanted Hare Krishna mantra, they had a huge positive by big margin. And those who chanted concocted mantra, they were more frustrated because nothing was happening and they were simply chanting over and over again. So they became more frustrated. And uh, those who didn't do anything, it's the same almost. So again, negative. And for sattva, again, those who chanted Hare Krishna mantra, again, a huge margin. And those who chanted other mantra, very small mar uh, margin of uh, positivity. And others who didn't chant anything, again, it's uh, reduced. It's negative. So this is a research paper which I can share. It's by uh, Dr. David Wolf, who is a PhD scholar. And he has done this research. So when we actually, concentration means no, all, uh, no other distraction. Just like we have sunlight distributed everywhere. But when we can focus all the sun rays onto a paper, it can burn the paper or a leaf. Right? So similarly, our mind is very strong. But only problem is it's diffused in different, different directions. We are thinking of studies, relationship. We have different circles of thought. But if we can focus all the energy, mental energy, on one particular substance, which is spiritual in nature, we can actually control the mind. And it happens by practice. That's why Krishna tells Arjuna, Arjuna tells Krishna, my dear Krishna, you're asking me to control the mind? It's impossible. You ask me to control the wind, I can control the wind. Now we cannot control the wind also. Right? But Arjuna could control the wind. But he, Krishna said, yes Arjuna, whatever you're saying is perfectly right. But you can still control the mind by two things. You practice Abhyasa and Vairagya, by detachment. So what is Abhyasa? Practice the right way of doing meditation. So when we, anything in this world, we build muscles by going to gym regularly. Not the one who goes one, you know, one week and goes after six months, then again after two months. He doesn't get anything, no results. A very minute result. Right? One who goes uh, regularly every week or every day, he gets muscles. Similarly for the mind. So we want to build mental muscles. You want to make the mind strong. So we chant this Hare Krishna mantra regularly. Daily, even if someone chants it for 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Gradually, capacity increases. Like Just like the person who goes to gym, he doesn't practice, he doesn't lift 5 kg every day throughout his life. right? He is going to increment the weights. He is going to increase the weights and increase the capacity. So similarly, in when we do chanting, sometimes the mind gets adjusted to 10 minutes. Then we increase it 20 minutes. So like that, when we keep increasing, the mind becomes very strong. That is one uh, method of how we can control our mind. This is a most important tip because Today people talk about time management, but why are people not able to say uh, utilize their time effectively? Because the mind is distracted. People are saying, "I have a lot of uh, you know desires, but I'm not able to fulfill, and that causes depression because I want to become an engineer, but I got to fail. I want to be, I want to do this, but I didn't get selected for that. So many desires, but I'm not getting anywhere. So that causes depression. And wh what is the cause of depression? Where is all this happening? It's all in the mind. So the tip to control the mind is one of the more, I feel the 
foremost uh, one of the foremost lessons for youth from the bhagavad gita this abhyasa and vairagya and the chanting of krishna tells satatam he says every time we should keep doing it so and that's most practical for us and today across the globe whether it be uh, indian or uh, russian or us european across the world everyone is chanting hare krishna and why are they doing it not because of blind faith but because they are able to see the results because they may youth taking it up so this is a very important aspect of uh, bhagavad gita that controlling the mind right so stepping on this journey understanding reading more about vedic philosophy clearly shows you that difference and then you're aware of the levels that exist and then you can be one step closer towards controlling your mind and not being um prone to all the impulses that the mind yes. is often prone to okay um there's a buddhist saying if there was no illusion then there would be no enlightenment the idea of an illusion is prevalent in vedic philosophy so the follow up question is what is maya what is this illusion yeah maya literally means ma means not sanskrit and ya is that to an object so that which is not is maya so in this why but generally we see in this world people use the term maya you know this is maya that is maya so this is real but it is maya because it's temporary because something i can uh, say that this particular object this laptop can give me happiness but the laptop is going to wear out after 10 years so then i change my source of happiness to uh, suppose girlfriend girlfriend can give me happiness but she is there and after marriage and everything after once we die or she dies it's going to go the relationship is going to be cut so that's why we say it's maya so maya means uh, when we actually take something uh, which uh, from its temporary nature and make uh, put it in a permanent uh, position just like uh, just just like the examples i gave you so actually the laptop or the girlfriend or the objects of this world cannot give us true happiness just by the dint of the temporary nature so but if we think that this is permanent that all these pleasures are permanent then we are actually going to uh, succumb to maya illusion because it's not true but uh, nonetheless these things are required yeah. for general life i'm just speaking from a philosophical point Trust of view so then what is permanent what is eternal what should we focus on Yeah so the permanent or the sat is referred to our uh, uh, spiritual nature and to god because we are eternal according to bhagavad gita krishna tells arjuna that you are eternal and i am eternal you are i am sanatan you are sanatan that is sanatan sanatan means eternal it always exists and the uh, something that connects both of us that's the dharma is sanatan dharma and we see what is that sanatan dharma in every one of us we all want to serve someone we are either serving our parents we are serving our uh, spouse we are serving our siblings we are serving our family relatives nation right right or the humanity or animals like peter is doing so we are we want to serve someone why because the nature of any one of us is to serve just like the uh, nature of salt is to be salty right or nature of sugar is to be sweet or nature of water is to be liquid but some people they say but you can make it into ice but if you keep ice at room temperature is going to come back to its original nature so nature is very inherent to the object of that uh, to which the nature belongs so um our nature 
uh, is that we want to serve, but serve whom? So uh, what Bhagavad Gita says is Sanatan Dharma means we want to serve God. Why we want to serve God? Because I am eternal and God is eternal. So relationship between the two is eternal. So Krishna tells this to Arjuna. Arjuna, don't don't worry, you know, fighting your uh, your family members because they are not this body. There's spirit soul sitting inside the body, just like a driver for the car. So if you kill the body, but the, uh, the soul, the actual person, he is not killed. He's. This is one of the things Krishna tells Arjuna, uh, tells to Arjuna. Not that we now go on, you know, and kill everyone, <laughs> but it is that is required for spiritual understanding because in our life we'll get so many decisions to make, right? So we take when we take decisions based on the Bhagavad Gita, we can actually get a very mature decision out of it. Or else it's very difficult to make choices. In the idea of the soul being eternal, do you, do you then believe in reincarnations? Do you believe the soul is eternal? There's a book, Many Lives, Many Masters, in which yes, yes. they cover this concept that souls often travel together and they're often reborn as different relationships across time. So do you believe in that? Yes. Yeah. Actually, Krishna talks about reincarnation and everything in the Bhagavad Gita. He tells Arjuna, he in, uh, the first advice Krishna gives to Arjuna is that he says, Dehi nosme nyata dehe kaumaram yavanam jara tata dehantara prapti dhirastatana muyati. He says, just as uh, in while staying in this body, the soul is actually having this body go through different stages childhood, adolescent, adulthood, old age, and death. So, what after death, what happens? So, we see in, while being in this body, the body is changing. So, the point of death, you change the body itself. Just like you are wearing clothes, and suppose I'm wearing this shirt and it wears out. So what I should do? Throw this shirt and get a new one. Right? So, similarly, the soul actually takes up another body. Krishna tells so that's that is, what happens when you die? Yeah, so you, you actually take up one body. Once it wears out, you take up another body, like that. So that is called reincarnation. And when we die, just like I told you about gross body and subtle body, so the soul is covered by subtle body and gross body, right? So the external body remains, but the subtle body, which consists of the mind, intelligence, and ego, goes along with the soul to the next body. That is why there are uh, cases of. Uh, uh, you know, phobias. You've heard of phobias? So, some people are hydrophobic. They fear water. So, Dr. Ian Stevenson from University of Illinois. So, he says, he has done intense research on reincarnation. He says the phobias exist because of uh, past strong impressions on the mind. So, if someone died by drowning in water, by nature, they're going to be very fearful. And there's no reason why. Like, people are all confused. Why this person simply afraid of water. Like my father, if he sees blood, he just, he cannot, uh, he faints. Because there's some connection. So it's it's not just by chance. It's all very logical. So anything which has a strong impression on the mind, and because the mind travels with the soul to the next body, that actually carries all these different, different tendencies. There's another uh, uh, case study by Dr. Ian Stevenson. It's called the James Pilot. So he's just a small boy of years two or three, but he can explain the entire uh, aircraft for you, right? The war, war aircraft. And finally, in that there's a video uh, where they do a research, and he actually finds out that he was actually part of a previous uh, war between Japanese and uh, the U.S. during the World War II. He was one of the pilots. So this small boy in this next next body, he's in this small boy's body. 
he actually has his action figures. He names all of them based on his co-pilots in the previous. Right. right? Yeah. So it's all very. Uh, have, it's this. It's one of the research. Have you had a moment where you were able to visualize your one of your previous lives? Oh, naturally, hypnotherapy exists as well as a practice, or yeah, maybe yeah. through meditation. Were you ever able to uh, go back, peel back the years, and actually see a different uh, avatar of your own soul? Uh, no, I haven't tried. All yeah, <laughs> but can that is that possible? I mean, if uh, hypnotherapy, it is definitely possible. Like just like uh, in our uh, rituals, you know, we call something called the shadda ceremony mm-hmm. when someone passes away. Yes, we have this uh, pinda which is formed. So every year we feed, we make this pinda and have we have rituals. So what what it actually means is the person who has been departed actually goes to Pitaloka. He stays, he or she stays there. And the time difference is like relative theory. So here one year is one day for them. So you, we perform the Shraddha ceremony once a year. So that pinda actually is like feeding him once a day, him or her. So... There is now that science we may not be able to understand how it's you know I see the pinda is still here how is he getting fed because it's not being eaten by anything right? and of course crows eat and there's some other uh, understanding but we see even uh, today the scientists have cracked the communication technology like I pick up my phone I can call someone in India so that is a technology now a layman may not understand the intricacies of such a technology but someone who's learned he knows. So in our um, Vedic tradition, there's so many Rishi Munis, all these, uh, they're all like scientists. They know all these things happening, how it's happening. Right? So all this technology exists, but today it has been lost due to lack of uh, knowledge. That's all. But it is there. So it is possible. It's a very interesting um, idea about the way people view death. It's not an end. It's just the beginning of something Yeah, new. that encouraged um, Arjuna to fight. Yeah. Uh, reminds me of a quote from Harry Potter, actually. Where Albus Dumbledore had said, To a well-organized mind, death is but the next great, great adventure. So, yeah, uh, so I see similarities here. Okay, so before we start wrapping up, I would love for you to interpret what I've built with the Lego. Okay. Since you didn't build anything today. Yes. So, what do you think this represents? These masterpieces. Wow, it's very difficult for me to make out. But this looks like an animal. I can tell you in uh, Srimad Bhagavatam, which is one of the most important literatures, with like natural commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. So in that, uh, when King Parikshit, who is grandson of Arjuna, son of Abhimanyu, he is uh, going through his kingdom and he sees a bull standing on one leg. So it has like one leg. Oh, you know, right. Something like an animal. Yeah. So, it's, uh, so it has four legs actually, but... The personification of Kali, this is called the Kali Yuga, right? So the personification of Kali has already cut off the other legs. And the first leg stands for four pillars. They are uh, uh, truthfulness, mercy, and uh, at least truthfulness and mercy. I mean, the four uh, sinful pillars are, I mean, these are the four pillars which uphold Dharma. And the opposite of these are uh, intoxication, meat eating, or uh, illicit affairs, and gambling. So, when we, the one is mercy, which actually goes against violent actions like killing, etc. Another one is truthfulness, which goes against gambling. So, we have other counterpart for uh, intoxication, 
and other counterpart for illicit affairs cleanliness cleanliness for illicit affairs and this one more i was just like at the tip of my tongue but that that is generally the uh, understanding of the four legs and in it is said in this age only one leg called truthfulness is remaining but i don't know how much is remaining now <laughs> this is 5000 years ago so this is that and maybe this is kali killing you know cutting the <laughs> legs that's exactly what i was building <laughs> really <laughs> no okay <laughs> but i love i love this interpretation i think that's the best one so far okay so let's move into our final questions yeah what are some books movies or role models that have strongly influenced in your life i am very much inspired by the life of uh, our founder acharya of iskon kaushal prabhupad so at the age of 70 when people in this world are planning to retire they want they want to go to different uh, parts of the world and have a vacation or something or just be in their homes read newspaper so shri prabhupad worked strenuously and he traveled to the west in a cargo ship cargo ship is never meant to carry passengers meant to carry cargo so it's like a rough and tough ship and he is like a, a sensitive old person at the age of 70 and he faced massive heart attacks twice in the ship it was like a over 30 days journey 30 40 days journey and he was uh, home seasick like because of being on land you know sea is so unnatural so he underwent so much and he only carried 40 rupees with him and he was planning to go to new york what is 40 rupees at that time even if you consume in 5 7 dollars that's all in the conversion rate at that time so he took such a risk just to give the principles of gita to the western world why because he understood at that time the indians they everyone would say i already i know the gita i've i've been uh, in connection with gita since my childhood but no one would actually practice it so it's like the familiarity breeds contempt right so he went to the west because he understood that east is always following the west so what he did he went at the age of 70 to west to new york city which was in those times it was a very uh, tough city i have heard from many people here in those days you cannot even cross the street without being mugged so they would just rob you I mean, people would hear gunshots every night so it was a very uh, rough and tough city very violent city and shri prabhupad came and he took all the risks to give out the knowledge of gita gradually he he got many sincere westerners who could understand what he's trying to give who could connect with the bhagavad gita and today the top top universities who are, which all in their libraries they have the bhagavad gita as it is and there are so many professors there is george harrison who was chanting hari krishna and there is uh, alfred ford he is uh, the chairman of the ford motors and there is uh, so many top people the phd scholars the poets philosophers everyone who is chanting hari krishna and who is practicing practicing the lifestyle of bhagavad gita so he is one of the people who has uh, inspired me the most and apart from him i also see my uh, spiritual teacher his own is radhanath swami he is also a very great motivational speaker he has the special quality of connecting everything to the bhagavad gita so he can he actually uh, when i hear him i've seen him how he can actually uh, tell people that just by practicing bhagavad gita you can solve all the problems environment environmental problems uh relationship problems uh political problems all these things can be uh you can be saved from all this just by practicing the gita so that requires a lot of depth and understanding he's uh, my other and of course i have many other teachers also yes and uh, and the books books 
Yeah. Books and movies. Movies, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from childhood with regard to movies, I would be usually most inspired by you know animated movies because they would always have a good lesson, good morals uh, coming out from it. Uh, but generally, the movies in our traditional languages, we have movies based on different pastimes, like based from Prahlad or Krishna. We all know Ramayana of Ramanand Sagar, how famous it was. So, so these are some of the um the movies or tv series which actually uh helped me i mean there were other things also i have watched but it's not really helpful and regard to books i would um say the bhagavad gita as it is that this has helped me a lot and uh, apart from bhagavad gita as it is we have many other uh, subsidiary books like science of self realization and all these books they have helped me and outside this i usually before uh having this copy of bhagavad gita i never have read i don't think i've read any uh religious or spiritual texts at all so usually this is what has given me a good motivation you mentioned shri radhanath swami and there's one quote of his that i really like where he said that the problem is not the problem the problem is that your mind is consumed by the problem and i find that very relevant today as well and always yes. in my life okay so we started with the poem it's only fitting that we present the last two questions with the poem as well so this is a poem called the dash and it goes something like this i read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend he referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end he noted that first came the date of birth and spoke the following date with tears but he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years so what would you like your legacy to be like what would we want your dash to represent what legacy i would like to leave would be that people actually try to uh, practice gita in their lives and teach it to others if anyone can do this i think you know my life is not not just my life and his life is successful so you follow up question yeah, yeah. do you believe in destiny destiny yes But there is both destiny and free will. Can both. they both exist? Yeah, both exist. How would that be possible if there uh, is? Yeah, like Gaur Gopal Prabhu, I heard this from him. He gives this analogy, just like uh, when you go to Mumbai airport and catch a flight to Delhi. So you are destined to go to Delhi, whatever it may be, right? But in the flight, you can create a, a scene. You can mess around with the air hostess. you can trouble other people and when you land in delhi airport you go directly to jail <laughs> right so the choice is there when you're in the flight but otherwise you sit next to a businessman in the flight you make a good friendship with him and uh, strike some deal and after you get off the delhi airport you you have a good uh, strong person in contact and you become a good businessman right so though mumbai to delhi is fixed what we do during that time actually shapes our future destiny right so either jail or you become a good business so it can be changed it can be changed yes there are actually uh, i don't remember the terms but there are three types of uh, karma we say like karma is referred to many things it can be action or destiny or reaction all this is karma so but there are three types of karma one karma is very difficult to change like you know there are some students they are like eight pointers and they put all their efforts for next exam and they get 8.1 you know not much how much will you do it it's just out of capacity 
but there's some amount of karma which can easily change right so you in your destiny it is not there but you put effort you can change this destiny and get a better destiny or something like that right but also there is when we actually become uh, practitioners of the gita or when we start uh, practicing uh, or when we start worshiping krishna when we become devotees what happens is you know is if there is a race between um, a luna you know what's a luna no it's like a moped you know moped oh yeah oh, in oh, india okay. yes yeah. yes so yes, there's course. a moped yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you have a mercedes benz and you have a maruti 800 they have a race so it's natural it's understood who is going to win so now suppose luna wants to win it's not going to win by its own capacity at all but when we become devotees it's like a helicopter coming picking up the luna and taking it to the finish line right and it can actually win also so when we take to spiritual lives it is very much possible that the karma is can be completely changed our destiny can be completely changed whatever you know uh, it can be arranged in a different way also that's also possible lots of things to think about final question what do you think is the meaning of life for me life means uh, like i think mark twain had a saying he said there are two important days in our life the day you were born yeah and the day you find out why why you're born yeah yeah so the why is a very important aspect of life i mean we can question shrimad bhagavatam says everyone in this world is questioning and answering you are questioning and i am answering in the school the professor is questioning the students is answering everywhere the question answers are going on but what is the subject matter of discussion that is very important so if, if we we can talk about hundreds of things but if we can focus on the right we can do other things also but at the same time have a focus on what is important because uh, can i tell you a story yeah sure okay there is a story of uh, a person uh he he was in his uh, boat it was ship and there was a hurricane or something like that and he collapsed the boat uh, collapsed and he had to he was uh, pushed to the shore of an island so he didn't know where he was when he got up in the morning and then he saw some tribal people coming taking him in a palanquin some sort of a palanquin and taking him and he he got scared but what they did they bathed him they dressed him like a king and put him on the throne and everyone was like paying obeisances and saying that you are the king so he was bewildered he was uh, for some time he uh, became he was the king but he became a little suspicious so he called one of his ministers and asked what's going on the ministers told him they have a ritual in this island and what is that ritual you uh, you heard this yes okay well, yeah. uh, the yeah. ritual is uh, they whoever comes to this island they make him the king for one year and then they take him out they put him in another island which is which has nothing it's like a barren island he will practically die by being killed by some ferocious animal there that's all that is their ritual so then the king he saw maybe 7 8 months were already passed he started thinking what to do so he was intelligent so what he did i asked some some students and it's very difficult to guess some students say that he actually uh, he started enjoying more he started enjoying as much as possible before he was put into other island so like that different answers came but one intelligent boy answered this he said he actually what he would have done if he was in the position of a king is he would actually tell all the ministers to start collecting all the assets in this kingdom and put it to the next island 
put it in the boat and send it to the next island. And then when he was thrown there, he became the king. He had everything. So similarly, intelligent are those, according to Bhagavad Gita, intelligent are those who can, who actually plan ahead, who are long-term thinkers, right? Who don't react on a short-term basis. So what happens after death? If we have this human body, and Bhagavad Gita says there's reincarnation and there is life after death. So how do we utilize our life? So if we have, we are studying in a university and we are, uh, uh, we have different activities. There are many clubs. So sometimes what happens, a student goes into so many other clubs and he fails the semester exam. So the whole point of that semester was to prepare for the exam. You can do other things, right? But finally you have to prepare for this exam. Uh, and if you pass that, then your life, uh, then the semester is success. So similarly, in our life, it is said the life is the uh, time given to prepare for the final examination, which is death. And how we prepare in this life, that means how, what are the subject matters we discuss upon or uh, what is our focus on, how are, how are we practicing our life? It actually, at the time of death, it is dis, uh, decided. What do I, I mean by decided? That actually, that is the time where our future destination is uh, chosen for us. How we spent our life. Because our future destination depends on two things. It is uh, desire and deserve. So if we have practiced our throughout our life, if we have lived a life of based on principles of the Gita, then we deserve and we have cultivated a desire go back to go to the spiritual world which in itself is on a huge another topic right so but if we even if we can if we lead our life in that way then the life is successful but forgetting what happens after death many people say there's no life after death i mean it's such a dangerous philosophy that is because what if there is life you no know? gita says there is life so then you we live in a eat drink and be merry mood right and then what we do is mostly, you know, activities which are harming oneself, activities which are hurting others or get into so many other tro troubles and person dies, right? And the time of death, he's thinking of so many other things. Then he is again reborn. So that's why Shankaracharya in his Bajagovindam prayers, he says, Punarapi Jannam, Punarapi Maranam. So people are simply get, being born, dying. And again born, again dying. So we are quit the cycle and go to spiritual world. So I consider life to be meaningful when we do other things also. Be participative in the clubs, no problem. Yeah. But focus on the end exam and how, how we should live our life accordingly. Strong meaning. Uh, yeah. Definitely something to ponder <laughs> over. Reminded me of this movie Groundhog Day, which also had a similar message behind it. Arjun, thank you so much. If people want to connect with you, learn more about Vedic philosophy, uh, join ISKCON, where can they do some? They can, uh, I mean, if they're in the US, if they're nearby Brooklyn, I think they should come. New York City, you can come to ISKCON Brooklyn or if they want to connect to ISKCON, um, practically ISKCON Center is there across the globe, every city. Sounds good. If you want to connect with Arjun, the doors are always open at ISKCON. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. 